Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Find hidden clues and uncover a murder mystery. Solve mind-teasing mysteries of the Roaring Twenties. Engage your sense of observation to find hidden clues. Search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris and uncover a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve. We're all here because we love true crime, right? Well, this game has the perfect twists and turns to keep your brain asking, what happened here? There's nothing I love more than getting to decorate my very own luxurious state island. The best part? You can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Amara, and this is Black Girl Gone, a true crime podcast. On this episode of Black Girl Gone, we tell the story of two women who were brutally murdered less than two months apart. On December 6, 2002, the body of 27-year-old Tamika Taylor was found in her home. She had been stabbed to death in her DeKalb County, Georgia home. Less than two months later, on January 27, 2003, 32-year-old Jennifer Clemmings was also stabbed to death in her home. Both victims had been killed with knives from their own kitchens. The multiple similarities in these murders led investigators to believe that perhaps these murders were possibly connected. Are the similarities coincidental or the work of a serial killer? This is Tamika and Jennifer's story. At this point, I'm no longer really surprised when I come across the story of a missing or murdered Black woman or woman of color that I've never heard of. First, we know these stories rarely make the national headlines, but also there are so many stories, so many women, there's no way that we could have ever really known all of their stories. This story, however, seems like a story that more people should have heard about. Now, I'm not from the DeKalb County area, but if you are, maybe the stories of what happened to Tamika and Jennifer were big locally in the news during that time. I mean, I would think that the possibility of a serial killer on the loose should be known to the public. Now, this episode is the first time that I have told the story of two women in one episode. Now, these two women were not connected in life, but their deaths may be. And so until investigators are able to catch whoever killed one or both of these women, then you can't really tell one story without telling the other because, according to some, there's a very strong possibility that these murders were perpetrated by the same person. Tamika Taylor grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. Growing up, her father, Matthew, said that Tamika, Mika for short, was very ambitious. She was very serious about school and getting good grades. After graduating high school, Tamika attended the University of South Carolina. While there, Tamika majored in English. But after graduation, however, Tamika started working at a bank in mortgage banking and found a lot of success there. She eventually was hired by Wachovia Bank in Atlanta and was a star at work. 
Tamika, according to her father, had always been a perfectionist. And so it's no wonder that Tamika excelled in such a competitive environment. But Tamika wasn't all business, though. She had a very active social life. She had a very large group of friends and associates, and Tamika often spent her weekends at upscale parties and events. Tamika was very outgoing, definitely not the shy type. At 27, Tamika was doing very well. Her success had given her the ability to purchase a home. And after her success at Wachovia, Tamika was hired by Chase Bank in Atlanta. She really had everything you could want at that age. A very active social life that found her at parties with celebrities and a very successful career. Tamika had accomplished so much in her young life, and she had so much more to look forward to. In December 2002, Tamika was getting in the holiday spirit when she had been invited to a holiday party hosted by a local radio personality that she had become friends with. Now, on December 4th, 2002, Tamika was preparing for the holiday party, and that was taking place that night. Now, she spent the afternoon at the mall. She made a purchase from Victoria's Secret, and then at around 5 p.m., she called the host of the party to ask if it was okay for her to bring a guest. Now, the host tells Tamika that it's okay for her to bring someone. And so, but she never really tells the person, the the host, who the person was or whether it was a male guest or a female guest. Now, Tamika also called her friend Rochelle around that same time. And her friend recalled in an interview with True Crime Daily back in 2018, the conversation that she had with Tamika that evening. Now, Rochelle said that when she spoke to Tamika, She said that she was going to the Christmas party and that she was really excited about it. Tamika told her that she was planning to wear a red dress for the festive occasion. And Rochelle said that she told Tamika, you know, have a good time. And Tamika told her that she would call her later on. Now, she never mentions that she's bringing a guest. But Rochelle never heard from Tamika again. And the party, well, Tamika never made it to the party that evening. On Saturday, December 6th, No one had spoken to Tamika since Thursday the 4th. Tamika's sister had not heard from Tamika in two days either, and she had been calling her, but she wasn't getting an answer. And it was not like Tamika to not answer the phone or not call her sister back, and so her sister decided to go over to Tamika's house to check on her. Now, when her sister arrived, she again tried to call Tamika, but she again didn't get an answer. Now, her sister let herself into Tamika's home. She checked around the home, and then she made her way upstairs. And there, she discovered a shockingly gruesome scene. Lying on the floor of her master bedroom was the body of Tamika, lying in a pool of blood. She had been stabbed 57 times. To describe her sister as shocked is probably an understatement. She was hysterical, but she managed to call 911. Now, when police arrived at Tamika's home, they found her sister inconsolable and in in shock. They go upstairs to the bedroom and find a very bloody scene. Tamika was dead on the floor, and there was blood all over the walls and in the carpet. And she was lying next to her bed with her hands tied in front of her. Now, the scene was bloody, but police got lucky early on because the killer was really sloppy. As they began to process the scene, they were able to recover both fingerprints and bloody footprints. Whoever had murdered Tamika was brutal, and Tamika most likely suffered. When her body was found, she was nude. 
she had been sexually assaulted before being stabbed to death. Now, a used condom was found on her bed, and police were able to get a partial DNA sample from it. The killer had also left behind DNA when he raped Tamika, and so investigators were able to recover DNA from her body also. Now, as for the crime scene itself, police had discovered that there were no signs of forced entry, which led police to believe that Tamika possibly knew her killer and had let him in that evening. Now, investigators believe that not long after Tamika arrived home and hung up with her friend, she unknowingly let her killer into her home. There was no sign of a struggle downstairs, and there was nothing stolen. And the security alarm had been disarmed shortly after 5 p.m. Now, the investigators believe that Tamika opened the door and then was forced to go upstairs where she was then raped and murdered. But who would want to kill Tamika? There was nothing about her life that would lead police to any motive. Tamika was successful and well-liked. Now, the initial feeling from the police was that this was someone that Tamika knew, however. The fact that there was no forced entry, paired with the fact that she had been stabbed so many times, led investigators to believe that this was personal. As police did their investigation, they questioned people in Tamika's life. They questioned two men that she had dated previously, one of whom who had expressed that he had been upset with Tamika because she didn't want to be more than friends with him. But after being questioned by detectives and submitting a DNA sample, he was ruled out as a possible suspect, and so was the other guy. They took DNA from multiple people as well to compare to the DNA at the crime scene, but none of the people that the detective spoke to were a match and everyone was cleared. The DNA that had been collected at the scene was run through police databases, but it didn't match anyone in the system. Neither did the fingerprints, which meant whoever had done this was not someone that was known to law enforcement. So at this point in the investigation, police are convinced that Tamika's murder was a crime of passion. They believe that she could have been murdered by someone who had been rejected by her and then decided to kill her. But there was also another important detail from the crime scene that made police think that this was a crime of passion. And that was that the killer stabbed Tamika with knives from her own kitchen. But with no DNA match and no possible suspects, police were really hitting a dead end in Tamika's case. No one could imagine who would do something so horrible to Tamika. The crime scene indicated that perhaps the person who had come over to Tamika's home may have been a consensual sexual partner. Investigators looked at the fact that Tamika had gone to Victoria's Secret that day, and then at around 5.39 p.m., she disabled the security alarm to let someone inside. And Tamika had asked the party host if she could bring someone with her. Also remember, I said that there were bloody footprints at the scene as well, but they didn't belong to Tamika. They belonged to the killer, which also indicated that the killer was barefoot during the attack and stepped in Tamika's blood. Another sign that this person possibly had been invited into the home where he felt comfortable enough to take his shoes off. Now, there was also a theory, however, that the consensual sexual partner and the killer were not the same that perhaps she had invited someone over and they had sex and then Tamika was killed after that person had left. But no one ever came forward to say that they were at Tamika's home and had a consensual sexual encounter with her. 
And no one linked to Tamika romantically could be matched the DNA from the condom found at the scene. Also, no one ever came forward to say that they were going to be the guests that Tamika planned to bring to that Christmas party, which is very strange. Now, nothing had been stolen, but the killer had gone through Tamika's personal papers. They were strewn all over her room and covered in blood. I mean, what were they looking for? Why would a random killer want to look through Tamika's personal information if they were just there to rape and kill her? Despite the amount of evidence that the killer left behind, police really had nothing about Tamika's life or lifestyle that gave them any leads or any reason why someone would want her dead. She was a normal, single, 27-year-old woman. She had male friends that she dated, and she had an active social life. But she was also a professional woman who had very high standards for the men that she dated. But as investigators began to run out of leads about who killed Tamika, six weeks later, and six miles away from where she was murdered, Jennifer Clemmings would meet the same fate under very similar circumstances. This holiday season, I want to give a gift to my loved ones that makes them feel special and unique, just like the relationship we share. That's why I'm giving everyone I care about StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. It is a thoughtful and meaningful gift that connects you to those who matter most. Every week, StoryWorth emails your relatives or friends a thought-provoking question of your choice from their vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions you've never thought to ask, like, what's the bravest thing you've ever done in your life? Or if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? After one year, StoryWorth will compile all your loved ones' stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. I plan on giving our keepsake book, the one that we create, to my mom. It's such an incredible gift that she can pass down to my kids. Reading the weekly stories helps connect you with loved ones no matter how near or far apart you are. With StoryWorth, I'm giving those I love a thoughtful, personal gift from the heart and preserving their memories and stories for years to come. Go to storyworth.com slash girlgone and save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash girlgone to save $10 on your first purchase. So the holidays are approaching and you may be thinking about how you're going to save some extra money. Well, I've got a solution that maybe you haven't thought of. Consolidate your high interest credit card balances to a lower rate and save with Lightstream. Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans with rates starting at 4.98% APR with auto pay and excellent credit. Much lower than the national average interest on credit cards over 19% APR. Plus, your rate is fixed, so as rates continue to rise, your low rate won't budge. There are no fees, and you can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. I went to their website, and it's super easy to use. You can select a loan purpose and your desired amount, and it's as easy as that. Just for my listeners, apply now to get a special interest rate discount and save even more. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash girlgone. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash girlgone. Subject to credit approval, rates range from 4.98% APR to 19.99% APR, 
and include 0.50% auto pay discount, lowest rates require excellent credit. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash girlgone for more information. Six weeks after Tamika Taylor was brutally murdered in her DeKalb County, Georgia home, investigators were no closer to finding out who killed her than they were when they began their investigation. The killer had left behind a crap load of DNA, but whoever had murdered Tamika was someone whose DNA was not in the system. And none of the people in Tamika's life matched the DNA profile either. Both investigators and Tamika's family were completely stuck. Neither had answers. But while investigators searched for answers, their attention would soon have to be split between two murders. On the evening of January 23rd, 2003, Jennifer Clemmings was at home. Like Tamika, she was a single successful woman who lived alone. At around 8 p.m. that night, Jennifer placed a call to a friend of hers, but the friend didn't pick up, and so it went straight to her voicemail, and Jennifer left a message. The friend she called had been home that evening with her husband. Now, from what I could gather, she had been using the computer in her home. Now, this was 2003, and so most people were still using dial-up internet to connect to the internet. And so if someone called while you were online, they would either hear a busy signal or your voicemail if you had voicemail set up. And so when Jennifer called her friend, the phone just went straight to voicemail. When Jennifer's friend got off the computer, she checked her messages. And on her voicemail was a very disturbing interaction between Jennifer and an unknown man. At the beginning of the call, you can hear the sound of Jennifer's phone hitting the floor. Now, the audio that I could find about this call was really, really bad and really hard to hear. And so you kind of have to read the subtitles to fully understand what is being said. Now, the message only lasts about 30 seconds, but in the recording, you can hear a very frightened Jennifer and an unknown male voice. The male voice is heard telling Jennifer, quote unquote, don't play, to which Jennifer responds and says, quote unquote, I'm not playing. I done told you, I done told you. The male voice then says, just sit on the floor. I'm not going to hurt you. And Jennifer responds, okay. Jennifer then is heard telling the man that she is going to pay him the money that she owed him. She says, quote unquote, don't you want your money? And he says, just sit on the floor. I won't hurt you. Now, as the recording ends, you can hear Jennifer saying a prayer. I mean, you can hear in her voice that she is absolutely terrified and knows that something bad is getting ready to happen to her. Now, when Jennifer's friend hears the voicemail, she immediately calls the police. She can tell that something bad is happening to her friend, and she is clearly calling for help. Now, when she calls police, she explains to them what she just heard and that they needed to go to Jennifer's house because something was happening to her. Her friend and her husband then got into their cars and headed over to Jennifer's homes themselves. They weren't really going to wait for the police because they were going to go and make sure that Jennifer was okay. But when the couple arrived at Jennifer's home, the police were already there. When police arrived at Jennifer's home after receiving the call from her friend, the front door to her home was unlocked. And so police entered the home and they went to the master bedroom, which was located upstairs. And there, lying on the floor, dead, was Jennifer. Her hands and her feet had been bound, and she had been stabbed 20 times. Jennifer was nude 
and had been sexually assaulted. The investigators at the scene could almost immediately recognize similarities between the crime scene in Jennifer's home and the scene just six miles away at Tamika's house. Like Tamika, Jennifer was a single successful woman who lived alone. Jennifer and her family had moved from Jamaica to the United States in the 1980s. Here in America, they had settled in Michigan, and Jennifer, she was the youngest of five girls. In high school in Michigan, Jennifer was very active. She was a cheerleader, and she played basketball and ran track. After graduating high school, Jennifer went to Ferris State University and majored in international business. Now, after graduating college in the early 90s, Jennifer moved to the Atlanta area. At the time, her mother and her sisters were still living in Michigan, but about two years after Jennifer moved to the area, her mom and one of her sisters moved there as well. They lived just a few miles from Jennifer. In a 2003 interview with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, her sister Jackie said that Jennifer was a fun person who you couldn't be around and be sad. Jennifer soon found success in the Atlanta area as a rep for Mary Kay Cosmetics. She rose in the ranks really quickly at Mary Kay, and her hard work had earned her the position of independent senior sales executive. And as a senior sales executive, Jennifer had 56 other salespeople under her. Jennifer also had earned a car from Mary Kay that was given to top performers, which if you know anything about Mary Kay from back in the day, like getting the car was really, really major. Jackie said that Jennifer had a drive to succeed and she carried it everywhere that she went. But on top of her success, Jennifer was also a loving sister and aunt to her nieces and nephews. Her sister told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that Jennifer would often help out and fill in for her at events when Jackie couldn't make it. Jennifer also used her success to try to help others. She would give people jobs and donate to charities, but she also had plans to start a nonprofit for women. Jennifer was loved and loving. So as police began to process the scene at Jennifer's home, they saw a scene eerily similar to the one at Tamika's just six weeks earlier. Jennifer had been bound and sexually assaulted. The knife used to murder her had come from her own kitchen. But unlike in Tamika's case, the investigators were unable to get any DNA. There was no sign to fourth entry, and so police believed that Jennifer possibly also knew her attacker and let him in. Although there were multiple similarities in the cases, the absence of a DNA profile in Jennifer's murder meant that there was nothing to compare in the cases besides what they could see. Investigators looked into Jennifer's personal life to see if anyone who knew Jennifer would have wanted her dead, but no one they spoke to gave them any reason to believe that they were involved. In Jennifer's case, all investigators really had was the voicemail with the killer's voice. Investigators played the recording for Jennifer's family and friends in hopes that someone would be able to recognize the voice on the recording, but no one knew who it was. The investigators in DeKalb County now had two single successful women who lived alone who were murdered just six weeks apart in their homes with knives from their own kitchens. The similarities in this case were very hard to ignore. However, in Jennifer's case, police seemed to have a clear motive, and it was captured on that voicemail. The male voice police believe to be the killer's is heard demanding money, and Jennifer is heard promising to pay. 
And so police believe that the killer and the killer's intended reason for being at Jennifer's home was money. And therefore, this was someone that Jennifer knew and had some kind of relationship with. I mean, could it have been just a coincidence? The women lived very close to each other, and so investigators began to look into the possibility that maybe someone doing work in the neighborhood had been responsible. Perhaps Tamika and Jennifer had both hired someone to do work at their home, and that person was responsible for their murders. Police did speak to several day laborers in the community, but none of them were ever considered suspects. As the investigation continued, detectives worked on the two cases, but they were getting nowhere. And despite the glaring similarities, investigators began to believe that the murders of Tamika and Jennifer were not related. In Jennifer's case, they believed that she was murdered by someone she owed money to who had done work for her. But in Tamika's case, they had no motive. There was nothing that had come up during the investigation that had led them to any reason why Tamika would have been killed. Because of the nature of these two murders, police have been very reluctant to release too many details about the crime. Now, as the months and years went on, both cases went cold. The DNA collected from Tamika's home was never matched to anyone, and the voice on the message left by Jennifer that night has never been identified. In 2018, Tamika and Jennifer's story was featured on Crime Watch Daily. And during that episode, the investigator that worked both cases reiterated that they did not believe that the two murders were perpetrated by the same person. At the time, they believed that the renewed attention, however, to the case would help solve it. But... Even with the national attention, there was no new information that came in about either Tamika or Jennifer's murder. Again, in 2020, however, an oxygen show called The DNA Murder would introduce a new theory which reignited the idea that Tamika and Jennifer were, in fact, killed by the same person, and that person is potentially a serial killer. On the show, they explore the possibility that the two women were killed by admitted serial killer Charles Lindell Carter. Now, Carter is currently in prison, serving three life sentences for murdering three women in the Atlanta area in 2004, 2005, and 2006. The women that Carter had murdered had been killed in their homes, except one who had been murdered at a friend's apartment. Two of the victims were stabbed to death, and at least one of them had been sexually assaulted by Carter. However, in the cases of these three women, they had all been connected to Carter in some way and knew them knew him prior to their murders. Now, Carter admitted to killing the three women as well as the murder of a man in 1992, but he never admitted to killing Tamika or Jennifer. Investigators were well aware of Carter and his crimes, and they had his DNA, but it was never matched to the DNA in Tamika's home. Investigators were never able to make a connection to Carter and Tamika or Jennifer. Also, the women that Charles admitted to killing fit a different victimology than Tamika and Jennifer. None of them lived alone, and they were all mothers. The host of the DNA of murder, however, speaks to a profiler who was also convinced that Jennifer and Tamika's murders are connected. 
police still had items from Jennifer's apartment that could be tested for DNA. The technology now is more advanced than it was 18 years ago. And so the show was allowed to submit some of those items for further testing to see if they can get a match to Tamika's murder or to Carter. But as of today, there hasn't been any information about those results. The show, however, does conclude by saying that they believe that Tamika and Jennifer's murders are connected, despite the investigators saying otherwise. And so the only thing that we can do is wait. Investigators believe that whoever killed Jennifer told someone, and so they're hoping that eventually someone will come forward. Tamika's case is going to come down to who the DNA belongs to. And so they have to make wait until they can find a match. And we've seen it happen time and time again. As DNA testing advances, investigators' ability to solve cold cases becomes more and more possible. The murders of both Tamika and Jennifer are baffling. Two women who were successful and well-liked, both raped and murdered inside their own homes, stabbed with knives from their own kitchens. But for as many reasons as there are to believe that these murders are connected, there are some that also lead to the possibility that they were not. Now, there are obviously things about the cases and about the crime scenes that we as the public just don't know. But I do believe that attention to these cases are what the investigation needs because investigators are right. Someone probably knows something. There are so many lingering questions in these stories. Who was Tamika intending to bring to the Christmas party that night? And why has that person never come forward? Who was the man heard on the voicemail from Jennifer? And what did she owe him money for? I also personally wonder why Jennifer called her friend that night instead of 911. But if these murders are just a coincidence, it's a hell of a coincidence. 18 years after Tamika and Jennifer were murdered, investigators still don't know who killed them. Like I said, they don't believe that their murders are connected and claim that they have evidence that leads them to that conclusion. But despite what investigators claim, many still believe that these murders are connected. The fact that two successful women were murdered under such similar circumstances is a real mystery. It's almost unbelievable. But the murders of Tamika and Jennifer, like investigators said, can be solved. Each case is really just missing one major piece that would help them be solved. And that's frustrating because investigators are so close to the answer, yet so far away. Usually in these types of cases that, you know, remain unsolved for so long, it's partially because such little evidence exists. But in both Tamika and Jennifer's cases, there's a ton of evidence. They just can't link it to anyone. And so at this point, investigators need someone to come forward. Even the smallest detail could lead them down a new path that may lead them to solving one or both of these murders. The murders of Tamika Taylor and Jennifer Clemmings are officially cold. And so unless investigators are able to get a match for the DNA or someone comes forward, all the investigators can do is wait. The families of these two women need justice for their loved ones. And so if anyone knows or remembers anything, 
investigators really, really need your help. Let's continue to share these women's stories. Hopefully, we can help bring closure to their families. May Tamika Taylor and Jennifer Clemmings rest in peace. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We will be back next week with a brand new story. Join us on Patreon for exclusive minisodes and ad-free episodes. As always, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Black Girl Gone Podcast. Listening on Apple Podcasts? Show your support for the show by leaving a review and a five-star rating. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.